Good morning, everyone. How's it going? Is this thing on? <laughs> um, if you have your Bible, you can open it to 1 Samuel 18. If you don't have your Bible, we have some in the back, but we also, if you have your, your study guide with you, we are on, uh, I think it's page 29 in that study guide that we've prepared for you. Um, let's, let's pray again and uh, dig into the story this morning. God, thank you for this morning. I thank you for this opportunity you've given to us to study your word. I pray that you would open our hearts and open our minds to the true fact that you have something to say to us. God, prepare our hearts with this knowledge that you are the God of the universe who created it by speaking into existence and you sent your son Jesus to come to this earth to redeem us, to restore relationship with you. You've done those miraculous and wonderful things and yet you want to speak intimately to us this morning and I pray that you would open our eyes to what it is that you want to say to us, Father, and I pray that you would say something to us in a deep and profound way that lasts and stays with us as we leave this place and encounter a life that many times is lived in chaos. Thank you so much for Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection. Uh, I pray these things in his name. Amen. Um, so this morning in, in 1 Samuel 18, the story is a challenge of authority and uh, challenge of the kingship. And there's going to be, there's a tendency in me as I've been preparing this week and even this morning as I've been preparing, there's a tendency for me to get lost in the story and explaining the details of what's happening um, that I think we can lose the fact that this is a beautiful metaphor for us in 2016. And I want to spend the first few minutes this morning thinking about the idea of this metaphor that we're going we're gonna to see the story, and the story is going to teach us something about lordship, about being king, and about being king of our own worlds and uh, stepping down off of the throne. Uh, and so I, I really I want to caution you and then as, as we get started here this morning to, to not get lost in the details of, of what's happening to Saul and to David and to Jonathan and to the crowds and all the players that are in the story. Don't get lost in those details at the expense of seeing the metaphor that God is trying to say to us this morning. And I believe that he's, he's trying to say something to us this morning. So in order for us to, to, to try to get to that, I want to I start off with, with two quotes from uh, a hero of mine, um, A.W. Tozer. Uh, Tozer says this, In every Christian's heart, there is a cross and a throne. So most of us here this morning, there is a cross and a throne in our hearts, metaphorically speaking. And the Christian is on the throne, so you are on the throne, until he puts himself on the cross. If he refuses the cross, he remains on the throne, and we remain king within the little kingdom and wear our tinsel crown with all the pride of a Caesar and doom ourselves, ourselves to shadow and weakness and spiritual sterility. That's a, that's a really powerful quote. So 
what, what Tozer is saying is we are in control of our lives until we decide that we're going to crucify ourselves and our desires and our wants and our jealousies and our prides and our ambitions and our goals. We're going we're gonna to be in charge of those things until we crucify ourselves to those. And we remain king of our choices, our obedience, our, our decisions, everything. We remain king in those situations with our tinsel crowns, our fake little Burger King crowns that we think offer us some sort of firm rule and authority in our lives and, in, and around us. And we end up living lives. Um, this is, that, like that last, after the, the comma there, the, the last few words, but we doom ourselves to the shadows and weakness and spiritual sterility. Who wants that? I don't. Uh, second quote for Tozer. This is uh, one of my favorite quotes. comes from Pursuit of God. Um, talking about the same notions. Our woes began when God was forced out of his central shrine and things were allowed to enter. Within the human heart, things have taken over. Men have now, by nature, no peace within their hearts, for God is crowned there no longer. But in the moral dusk, stubborn and aggressive usurpers fight among themselves for first place on the throne. I love that last bit there. Moral usurpers fight for first place on the throne. Do we, do we realize that? So we're, we're talking about this metaphor of kings, but, but here, here's the heartbeat is that there's stuff that's happening in this world. God and your enemy Satan are at, at war, at battle, in your heart for kingship. In your heart. And what you desire and what you, what you strive for and what you passionately look for. Um, so I want to make two statements and then we'll get into... Um, Get into 1 Samuel 18. Uh, Because you are here in this room, you have some sense of desire to follow God and his gospel. Can we offer that as a given? Because we're here today, because we decided to wake up, get dressed, drive here, there's some sense in us that we want God, we want to know God and we want to know his gospel. That's true of each of us. Um, The second statement is because you are human... You have a tendency to set up idols as gods and make them your gospel. That's, if, if we boil everything down, we're here because we want to know God and his gospel, but we have a tendency because we are human to set up idols and make them our gospel. All right? That's what's happening in our story. And again, don't get lost in the details of the story. See this um, as, a, as a metaphor for us. Um, and... and one of the things I also want to see, I, I, was, I was really tempted to, uh, to, to show a, a clip from a movie, but it's a little bit silly. And, uh, well, I'm a little bit silly most of the time. So, but um, there's a, a scene in uh, the, the Ballad of Ricky Bobby. You guys familiar with the film? Uh, classic American filmmaking. Uh, they're sitting around the table, and uh, Ricky Bobby, uh, played by the wonderful Will Ferrell, um, begins to pray for the meal. And he says, dear baby, whatever, like six pounds, eight ounce baby Jesus. And then they stop and start talking about how they see Jesus, right? Well, I like to picture my Jesus as, okay, and this is where it gets silly and maybe a little bit blasphemous. Um, so we're not going to go to that spot, but you're probably there in your mind. Um, uh, 
and I say that because as, as church people, we like to see Jesus, when, when we picture Christ, we picture Christ most often, I think, as Christmas Jesus and the gifts that come there, or Good Friday slash Easter Jesus and the gifts that come there. And if we're really good Christians, we might think of Jesus as like teaching his disciples or walking on the water or living uh, in poverty. We might picture like bearded Jesus that is on the picture in the wall at, at grandma's house, right? We might picture that. But seldom do we picture Jesus as, as Lord. As much as he's Christmas baby Jesus and all the feelings that come with that and the gift that, that, that he brought, and those are appropriate things to think. And, and we're just fresh out of the Easter season and all the gifts that we think of that. And we think about those things a lot. And it's good to think about those things a lot. But seldom do we think about Jesus as, as Lord and what that demands. Like, do we know when Jesus says, I want to be called Lord by you, that means a whole lot more than we want to really think about. And this morning's story in 1 Samuel 18 is going to force us to think about that, I hope. Um, so uh, turn to 1 Samuel 18. Um, we're going we're gonna to walk through these, these passages of, of 1 Samuel 18, looking at three different groups of people here. We're going to skip the first five verses because that's the punchline and we're going to, and that's where we want to end this morning. So we're going to end with the first five and start with verse six. We're looking at the crowds here. Uh, As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, that is Goliath, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. This is the the World Series parade down Market Street, all right? This is everybody's all excited, running out, celebrating their heroes. Um, That's important to note. They're celebrating their heroes, playing with tambourines. And the woman and the women sang to one another as they celebrated. They're throwing a party. And they say, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Uh, so the gospel that's being spoken by the crowds is a prosperity gospel. If you give me this, you can be my king. All right? So God is not Lord in this moment. Saul and David are Lord because they're giving them what they want. And this is, okay, don't get lost in the details of the story. Let's see the metaphor. And, and we, we slip here all the time. We create these idols all the time. We create these idols in people all the time. We create these idols in, in churches. We create these idols in our spouses. We create these idols in our jobs. We create these idols everywhere. As long as you give me this, you can be my God. But at the heart of that, you're God there, right? You can be my Lord as long as you're good to me. As long as you're my definition of good to me. Again, this is Christmas and Easter Jesus. Christmas Jesus brings us, you know, 
Love has come and dwelt among us. Emmanuel, God is now with us, dwelling with us. There's so many gifts that are there. And Easter Jesus is now we have, he's resurrected. We're champions. We, so God is giving to us. But in the middle of that is, is lordship. I want to read um, Luke chapter 9. Familiar verse alert. Listen to it. And he said to all, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross daily and follow me. Crucify yourself is when Jesus command, demands to be Lord of your life. He's demanding that you crucify yourself. This isn't Christmas or Easter Jesus. This is like firm hand Lord Jesus. Verse 24. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever who loses his life for my sake will save it. Who wants to put themselves at odds with God? Raise your hand if you'd like to put yourself at odds with God. Good answer. But we do this all the time. I do this all the time. I put myself at odds with God by being disobedient to him and untrusting that his way is the best way. And this is the crowd. As long as you're doing what I want you to do, God, you can be my God. And when we see king here, insert God. Now, let's get to Saul. Saul is the, is the big one here. Verse 8. And Saul was very angry. Let's stop each time we see something about Saul's demeanor. He's very angry. Why is Saul angry here? Because he's a wicked, jealous man who sits on the throne. Uh, Because his gospel is self. As long as I am in charge, as long as I am the hero, you can be my God. But that's not really God at all. So the crowds have the prosperity gospel. Give me this and you can be my king. Saul's gospel is his self. As long as I am in charge, everything is good. All is well. Uh, And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? A couple of things to note there. One, this is a very big compliment that they're paying to Saul. You are responsible for a thousand people. That's, that's a lot, right? That's a, that's a compliment to him. But David's compliment is better, and it drives him crazy. It brings jealousy into his heart. But, but what else there? And to me, they've ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? Do you see how he's exposing his idol there? What more can they give him but what I consider to be my God? This is, Saul is motivated by his idol and the thing that he worships. You can have anything that you want, but I know the next step for David is to take my throne and I don't want to give up my throne. Don't get lost in the details and see the metaphor here. This is poking at it. And if you don't see it poking at you, then you're not looking closely enough. Because it's poking at you. It's poking at me. 
Verse 9. Verse 9 is, he's seen David as a threat to his lordship. And this is what the response of Saul. And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit. So David, or Saul is angry. He's eyeing David. He's distrustful of David. And now a harmful spirit from God rushes upon him. And he raved within his house while David was playing a liar. And he did day by day. So basically, don't get lost in this picture. What's happening is David's playing gentle, soft music. And Saul is literally crazy. He's raving crazy. And why is he raving crazy? Because there's a threat to his idol. And again, we brought from the first givens. By our, our presence here in this room, we have a desire to know God and his gospel. And by the fact that we're humans, we have this tendency to set up idols for us. So we all have them, and God is a serious threat to them. And the metaphor that this is teaching us is this, these are the products of you giving in to your idol, and these are the products of you giving in to God. Do you want to put yourself at odds with God? David, or Saul, is putting himself at odds with David. Also, I want to say this. Saul isn't mad at David. Who's Saul mad at? Not rhetorical. Saul's not mad at David. Here's a hint. It's a three-letter word and begins with a capital G. Well done, Megan. Way to go. So... I need you to see this, the, this big picture in the story. The reaction, the physical reaction that Saul has is to attack David physically. But he's not mad at David. He's mad at God. And this is the manifestation, the greatest manifestation of Saul, of God, to Saul of God is David. And so Saul attacks David. So as you, as you think through this idea of a, of a metaphor and, and what, this, what your idol is that you cling to, what your idol is that you don't want to give away to God, and that manifests itself by being frustrated and angry at someone, something, some way. You're not mad at David. You're mad at God. Saul it's the perfect picture of that. And he's jealous. Um, in fact, I, I want to read a quote from Scott Sauls. Fire that up there, Cooper, that, that quote. Um, Scott Sauls says this, Jealousy mourns and grieves because of those who rejoice and rejoices because of those who mourn and grieve. We get jealous Whenever you get jealous, it's because you're God. You, you have a self-gospel. And so what, is, what would the proper... I mean, David and Saul are on the same stinking team, right? It's like somebody on your team hits a home run and you get mad at them. It's just dumb. But here... It's a completely different story. And, and I think if we were honest enough with ourselves, the jealousy creeps into us. And we rejoice when people mourn. And we mourn when people rejoice. Man, it's, 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 a, 
it's a reality for us. Let's go back to the story. The next, verse 10 again. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. And he did day by day. And Saul had a spear in his hand. Watch what jealousy does. Verse 11. Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Who's Saul really trying to kill? He's trying to kill the threat to his gospel. His gospel is if I have this, I'm going to be good. And David is the threat to that. God is the threat to that because God has anointed David as the next king. Saul is mad at David, not at God. So he's trying to kill God. Isn't that stupid? What happened the last time somebody tried to kill God? How'd that work out? I guess in this story, the next time somebody tries to kill God. This happens before Christ gets crucified. Verse 11, And Saul hurled the spear at him, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Like, we don't, we don't earlier in 1 Samuel the Lord departs from Saul because Saul was disobedient. Like we walk around talking a lot about grace here at North Church, but obedience really, 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 really matters. And here it let's add I don't know how many reallys I just said, but add one more, and it matters that much here. It really matters. He was of look, look, I mean it's just it's just silly, but our, we're allow this story, the, re, the reality of this story, to be a metaphor for us. David, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. If he was really afraid of him and allowed the gospel of God to rule his heart and not the gospel of self to rule his heart, wouldn't he just go back? That happens to David later. This very David runs away from God, chooses himself, chooses to, to gratify his flesh, has adultery, murders, does many terrible things, but runs back to God. This is not like, disobedience is not an end for Saul unless he continues to allow his own self-gospel to rule him. That's so important. David was afraid of Saul because the Lord was with him. But, but just go back. God will welcome you. Where you are here now in this place, in this time, apart from God, giving in to the prosperity gospel or giving in to the self-gospel, God says to you, my love is steadfast. You can have my grace. Come back to me. Saul has that option, but his gospel is loud. It's very loud. Verse 13, so Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand, and he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, making Saul even more jealous and even more mad because he mourns when people rejoice. For the Lord was with him. Again, he's not mad at David, he's mad at God. David's successes were because of God. Verse 15. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. Again, 
David is really the picture of, of God in Saul's mind. He's afraid of God. And it's, the answer is so simple right in front of him. Verse 16, But all Israel loved and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Um, then, verse 17, shifting gears a bit, Saul devises a plan. He says to David, Here is my elder daughter Merib, and I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. Okay, let's walk through. The Merib is a gift to Saul. Children are a gift from the Lord. So Merib is a gift to Saul that Saul uses to further his gospel. Instead of tracing it back to further his worship of God, he furthers it his self-gospel. Let's see how he does that. Here's his idea. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him. I clearly can't kill him. I'm not able. So I'm going to let the Philistines try to kill him. And David said to Saul, who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? Verse 19. But at the time, Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David. She was given to Adriel, the, I have no idea, for a wife. Maholathite, I guess. Um, Saul's daughter should have been given to David, but was given to this other guy instead, swinging a miss for Saul. I was thinking, all right, I'm going to give her, him to her, and then he's going to go off, and the Philistines are going to kill him. So I don't have to because I clearly can't. So David's plans, or Saul's plans, are thwarted by God. Verse 20. Now Saul, now Saul's daughter Michael, loved David, and they told Saul, and this thing pleased him. Saul thought, yes, now my plan's going to work. Let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. This is really interesting because um, fast forward a little bit and David is supposed to be at battle and he sees Bathsheba bathing and he takes her and impregnates her and he gets caught in this and so he brings home the husband of Bathsheba and he won't sleep with her because his friends are at battle and I'm just not going to do that. It's not the right thing to do. And so David is messed up here. What am I going to do? I got it. I know. I'm going to go sin and let my enemies kill this guy. So what Saul does to David, David tries to do a few years later. He's like learning how to be a, a worshiper of an idol from Saul. Moms and dads, Pay attention. That same sort of relationship that's present here between Saul and David, the idols that you succumb to, you're teaching your children to fall to those same idols. That ought to buckle your knees. It buckles my knees. It's hard to get mad at your kids when they act just like you. verse 21 Saul thought let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him and the hand of the Philistines may be against him therefore Saul said to David a second time you shall now be my son-in-law and Saul 
commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, by the way, let me, let me just speak about that word servants. There are people's, people whose job it was to empower the king, Saul. I think we all have our servants, people whose job it is to empower us to succumb to our idols. Do you guys have those people? People who will say, it's all right. We have servants in our lives. Servants don't speak hard truth to us. Servants aren't really our friends. Speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David. And David says, Does it seem to be a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? In other words, I have nothing to give to you. And the servants of Saul said to him, Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus you shall say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of all the king's enemies. In other words, go and do something that's completely impossible for you. Go and do something that's completely impossible for you, that's going to wind up with you being killed. And David says, All right, I'll go and do it. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200, twice the number of Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michael for a wife. But when Saul saw that and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid, so Saul was David's enemy continually. So Saul's doing all these things, making these plans, and his plan works to perfection. It happens exactly the way he intends it to work out, and it it backfires. Our plans are going to be thwarted by God's plans. They're going to backfire, and they're going to leave us in bad places. Um, Let's skip back to um, to verse 1 and see uh, Jonathan. The proper response to a threat on our own lordship. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul... The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. Something supernatural, spiritual happened between David and Jonathan. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Verse 2. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. This is important to note the, the practical nature of what's happening here. Dave, Jonathan is literally stripping himself of his privilege and giving that privilege over to Saul. Who is, or giving it over to David, who is the heir to the throne of Saul? Who gets to be king next? Jonathan does. But Jonathan's actions here say, no, I don't. I give it to you because clearly 
the Spirit of God is upon you. You have been anointed as king. I am going to give of myself in order to acknowledge the fact that God is my king. This is the response that God has for us. This is what God intends for us. This is the real gospel. Um, exchanging the temporary for the eternal. Jonathan strips himself of all, that, all of his privilege and gives it to David. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. I want to I center in on Jonathan as, as we end here this morning. Jonathan is, is the definition of meek here. And meek is a word, I think in our context, I've said this many times, meek is a, a word we think of shy and bashful and weak, but there is a strength to meekness. And, and Jonathan is the definition. Here is the, the, the Greek dictionary word of definition of, of meek. It's the disposition of spirit in which we accept God's dealing with, dealings with us as good. The disposition of spirit in which we accept God's dealings with us as good. So, if the idol of self rules Jonathan, David is a threat. If the idol of, if God is on the throne, then David is not a threat. He's a manifestation of God's presence. And our response to that is to rid ourselves of what we think we're owed, our privilege. We think that we're owed something and rid it of ourselves, and give it back to God. That's exactly what Jonathan does here. And in our minds, in our, we have been given, like America is, is incredible, and, and the opportunity that we have is incredible, but it's done an incredible disservice to us because it's taught us this idea of the definition of success. It's taught us that this is what we need to be successful. And here, in this story, Saul is pursuing that definition. I want for me. I want to satisfy me. And Jonathan is doing the complete different. God, I trust that your dealings with me are good and only good. And his response is to rid himself of his privilege. And what does Jonathan gain? He gains way more than what this world could offer to him. And this is the metaphor for us. See the story and the details of the story, but more, see the metaphor. What are we chasing? What are our idols? And when we chase those idols, we are literally saying to God, I'm better than you at being God. And we literally put ourselves at odds with God. I asked you 20, 30 minutes ago, who wants to put themselves at odds with God? No one raised their hand. You answered correctly. Now, let's ask a, a different question. Who is putting themselves at odds with God? Yes. All the time. And it's just, it's clearly not, in this story, it's clearly not smart. But we don't understand. We fail miserably. So let's see Jesus as Lord, the one that says, get off of your throne, crucify yourself, 
because I want to give you life. Do you really believe that? Why did, what motivated Jonathan to strip himself? This is what needs to motivate us. This is the idea of being meek and, and full of faith. Be faithful to God because he is faithful to you. Trust him. Let's, uh, let's pray and I'll give you some time to reflect. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this story of David and Saul and Jonathan. Thank you for the example of Jonathan. God, I pray that you would uh, press into us. God, I pray you would show us, illuminate for us our idols. I pray you would not bring servants to us who help us to give in to our idols, but instead you would bring us prophets who speak hard truth to us and bring us closer into relationship with you. God, I pray that you would make it obvious to us where in our hearts we have a white-knuckle grip on our thrones, unwilling to climb off of them. Because being at odds with you is just not smart. God, center our minds around you. God, speak clearly to us now as we respond to you. God, and as we, we take of communion today, may we not just reflect on a resurrected Christ, but may we reflect on Luke 9, 23, that may we be crucified and may we crucify ourselves as you willingly were crucified for the joy that was set before your son for the joy that is set before us, may we crucify ourselves. And as we break of the bread and dip into the bowl, God, shout in our brains. Shout loud in our brains that this is the path to virtue. This is the path to life. This is the path to joy and hope and to peace, to crucify ourselves. May we taste that bread and that juice in our mouth, and, and will it speak to us that we might crucify ourselves? You are wonderful, God. And you are good. Help us to believe that. Please, God, help us to believe that. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.